You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Isaiah 41, 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, no, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a, fainting bur- a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I've kept silent and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. 
and I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. The word of the Lord. Are you happy? Do you find yourself this morning satisfied, content, fulfilled? If so, what is it that's making you happy? If not, what is it that is standing in the way of or preventing your happiness? The reason I start with this question is because Isaiah wants to talk to us this morning about idols, false gods. And that's a challenge for us because we don't see idolatry as a modern problem. When we read the Bible's language about idols, we realize at the time this book was written, when Isaiah was writing, sure, idolatry was a significant issue. In fact, archaeologists and historians have unearthed references to 3,000 different deities from ancient Mesopotamia. So Isaiah's world was a world full of little g gods. The question in Isaiah's day was, why should we worship the God of the Bible and not one of the other 2,999 that are available to us? Isaiah lived in a world that was full of gods, but we live in a world that has been emptied of the gods. If the question for Isaiah was, why God, not one of the other gods, the question for us is, why worship any God at all? So, how does this talk of idolatry have any relevance for us living in our world today? What's the connection between Isaiah's day and our day? And I want to suggest to you that the connection is happiness. You are chasing happiness. Just like the people who lived in Isaiah's day, just like every human who's lived on the face of the earth at any time in history, all of us seek, long for, pursue happiness. And whatever you consider essential to being happy is likely the thing in your life that is an idol, a false god, a god substitute. The reason is simple, because happiness is truly and finally only found in God. You know this because for us, all of us know that happiness is outside of us somehow. It's out there to be gained somewhere, and the reason we intuitively know that is because we are made to find our happiness in God. God is the infinite, inexhaustible source of happiness, and you and I will never be happy until we are happy in Him. And this morning, God wants to show you how much better He is than all the other sources of happiness that we chase after. So let's just begin by admitting that idolatry is very much a modern problem. Now, 
you may not bow down before some visible object of worship, but make no mistake, you give your allegiance to something. You stake your happiness on something. You get angry or frustrated when something is out of your reach or out of your grasp. What is that thing for you? What is it for you that is your false God? Your path to happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment. Let me tell you about a couple of the idols that I I often find myself chasing after. Let me just give you a little insight into my soul and my world. A few of the false gods I find myself running toward. The first is what you might call order or stability or structure i'm the kind of person that likes an ordered world i like things to be organized whether you're talking about my closet or my calendar or my physical space i I work better when things are orderly as a preference that's a fine preference to have many of you are wired like me that's the world you prefer to live in but here's what happens that desire that that natural preference morphs into a demand. I must have order. I must be in control of my schedule and my calendar. If I am not, it is an obstacle to my happiness. So here's a very practical way that may play out. I like to go into my week, go into each day knowing, here's the things I need to accomplish today. Here's the time I have set aside to do those things. The work that I do particularly requires some reading and some study and some writing and some concentration. And so I give blocks of my schedule to those things. And so when I'm in one of those places in my weekly rhythm, giving myself to those things, and someone calls or someone stops by and they want to have a conversation, they need some counsel or they need some help or they just want to talk and connect. Do I see that person? as a fellow human made in the image of God, that God is now giving me an opportunity to love as he loves them? No. I see them as an interruption. I see them as a threat. I see them as an annoyance. I'm no longer able to love them as I love myself, fulfilling the great commandment that Jesus gave, because they are not a welcome distraction, but rather an interruption in my schedule, something that is preventing me from getting what I really want. That's how idolatry works. It's simple and it's subtle, but it's very sinister. Here's another one of my idols that I often chase after, the idol of respect. Look, you don't have to like me. I don't really get that, get that much value out of you liking me, but you must respect me. In fact, I demand that you respect me. I've earned your respect. I deserve your respect. And so if you disrespect me, if you disregard me, if you dishonor me, how dare you? Maybe some of you are like me in that regard. Now, by the grace of God, he's more and more delivering me from the grip of these idols. I'm experiencing more and more freedom from these, but I'm just letting you know, these are two of the things that I often run back to and find myself perplexed and challenged by. Those are just two out of maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of possible idols, possible sources of happiness that may exist in your life. What are they for you? What are your false gods? What are your God substitutes? What are the good things that you turn into ultimate things? 
What are the personal preferences and desires that morph their way into demands that you make on other people? The good news that God has for you this morning is that God pursues idolaters. Even when we're chasing after other false gods and sources of happiness, God in His grace is chasing after us. He wants us to experience the joy of His salvation and the happiness that's only found in Him. And so what God is going to do this morning through Isaiah is He's going to challenge our idolatry. He's going to show us the stupidity of idols, the supremacy of God, and the satisfaction that is ours in Him. The stupidity of our idols, the supremacy of God, and the satisfaction that is ours in Him. That's what He wants to show us in this text in Isaiah. So let's look first of all at the stupidity of our idols. Let's see how God unmasks the foolishness of the false gods we chase after. Look at Isaiah 41, verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. So we're back in the courtroom where we left off in Isaiah 41 a few weeks ago. Let them bring them. The pronouns here can get confusing. What God's saying is, let the idolaters, the idol worshipers, bring their idols, their false gods. So bring your false gods, bring them in here on the evidence table, lay them out, let us see them, and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, or that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know you are God's. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. God is here putting our idols and the idols of Isaiah's day on trial. He's saying, all right, bring them in here. Let me see all these gods you worship. Now, okay, idols, tell us what's going to happen. Predict the future. Do something, either good or evil. Inspire in us awe or fear. Do something that would show you have any power or any sovereignty at all. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. See, God is, God is being very reasonable and rational here. He could just drop authority on us and say, I'm God, these idols aren't. But instead he says, okay, let's, let's just consider. Bring, bring them in. Bring in the false gods, the, the sources of happiness you're chasing after, and let's talk about it. Let me ask you this question, God says to you. How's that working for you? If you're putting all your hope for happiness in some relationship, how's that working for you? If you're putting your hope for happiness and satisfaction in career advancement, how's that working for you? If you're seeking happiness and your ability to control your schedule, how's that working for you? God invites you just to to ask the practical question, how's that going? Do these gods have any power to deliver what they promise? Because this is how idolatry works, right? It always promises us something. That's why we chase it. 
There's a promise of happiness or fulfillment here. That's why I started down this path in the first place. God just says, okay, well, let's see. How's that, how's that working? What's that God delivering for you? God invites us to compare our idols with himself. In contrast to the impotence of these idols, look at verse 25. God says this, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He's speaking here of Cyrus, the Persian king, who would rise up in about 550 B.C. and conquer the nation of Babylon. Remember, Pastor Todd Bumgarner talked about this a few weeks ago, if you were here. That's who God's talking about when he says, I stirred up one from the north. I raised up this deliverer. His name is Cyrus. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand that we might say he is right. Remember, Isaiah is writing this over a hundred years before Cyrus. Isaiah's goal here is that when God's people reading this letter in Babylon recognize, oh, Cyrus has been raised up and he's about to conquer Babylon, that they would recognize God said this was going to happen. God's just fulfilling the very thing he said was going to happen. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and to give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. There's only one God who controls history. There's only one God who declares beforehand what's going to happen. There's only one God who's gone on record proclaiming good news and then delivering what he proclaims, and that is the true God, the creator God, the God of the Bible. In contrast to the impotence, the failure, the flawedness and foolishness of our false gods, God says, I'm the one who raised up Cyrus. I've declared beforehand what was going to happen. I am reliable and dependable because I am capable of predicting, controlling, and determining the future. Look down at Isaiah 42, verse 8. God says this. I am the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This is why our idolatry is a big deal. Not just because it threatens our happiness, but because it detracts from God's glory. When we chase after false gods, here's the problem. Only one being in the universe is worthy of our glory and our praise and our honor and our worship, and that's God. And what we do is we take the glory and the honor and the affection and the attention and the appreciation that's supposed to flow to God, and we pour it out on other things that are not God's, and so we are stealing glory from God. We're taking glory that belongs to God and giving it to things that are not God's. And so you see, our idolatry is not just ridiculous, it's rebellious. It's not just stupid, it's subversive. It's selfish. Which makes it all the more amazing that God would care about us. 
all the more amazing that God would reach down to save and to deliver people who are running the other way, giving the glory that He deserves to other things. Despite our idolatry, God loves us and He's jealous to save us. And so, verse 1 of chapter 42 changes the subject starkly from the stupidity of our idols to the supremacy of God. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. In contrast to your idols, God says, behold my servant. Who is this servant? Notice his identity is not specified. We're left wondering exactly who this is talking about. And whenever the Bible does something like this, uses a reference like this, and doesn't specify who it's talking about, the first thing a good student of the Bible does is to ask, where else in the Bible is someone called my servant? Where else does God call someone my servant? And so if we ask that question, here's what we find. The title, my servant, is used in the Bible to describe the people of Israel 14 times. Moses six times, David 21 times, the prophets nine times, Job seven times, and Nebuchadnezzar two times. In other words, there's not one servant, there are many servants. This is a motif or a theme that runs through the whole Old Testament. And all of these small s servants are forerunners of one capital S servant. Isaiah 42, 1-4 is a messianic prophecy. It points the reader forward to God's Messiah, His anointed one, whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know this is a messianic prophecy? Do you have to go to seminary to learn that? Nope, you just got to read your Bible. Look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. The Gospel writer Matthew is giving us an account of Jesus' life, and here's what he says. Many followed Jesus, and he healed them all. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, quote, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope, end quote, parentheses, Isaiah 42, 1-4. Now, of course, living where we do in redemptive history, we can put Matthew and Isaiah together, and we can see, oh yes, Isaiah predicts this, and Matthew says this is fulfilled in Jesus, and so we can see how those two texts work together as prophecy and fulfillment. But Isaiah's original audience didn't have the book of Matthew. 
they were living at a different time in redemptive history. They couldn't see the fullness of what Isaiah was pointing to. But notice, even for them, at their place in redemptive history, what Isaiah has done. He has said, in contrast to these idolatrous gods who can't do anything, the true God, the real God, has raised up Cyrus the Persian as a small M Messiah, as a small D deliverer, as a small S servant. And because he's done that, people of God, trust him to bring the true Messiah, the true servant, the one who will come to bring justice to the nations. Isaiah is saying to his readers, God's faithfulness in raising up this deliverer named Cyrus is an inspiration and a call to trust in God that he'll be faithful to raise up the true deliverer who is yet to come. Let's Let's observe in this text. Let's sort of hone in on this servant. Since we know this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, since Matthew tells us this, Isaiah was talking about Jesus. Let's observe three features of this servant. Notice, first of all, the nature of the servant. He is gentle. A bruised reed he will not break, A faintly burning wick he will not quench. How different this servant is from Cyrus, who it says in verse 25, shall trample on rulers as on mortar. Cyrus comes with might and with power and with aggression and with a military force to back him up, and he's going to deliver by sheer socio-political power and military might. Jesus, on the other hand, comes with gentleness, comes with humility. Jesus doesn't trample into your life with swaggering aggression. He comes gently and winsomely. Jesus comes with a settled confidence that he is exactly what you need. That all your longings for hope and happiness and fulfillment are ultimately found in Him. And so He doesn't need to win you over by force. He doesn't need to subjugate you in a dominating way. He just comes to win you and to woo you with His love, with His goodness, with His grace. This servant is gentle. Secondly, I want you to notice the cause of the servant. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And oh, how we need justice. As we've paid attention the past month to events unfolding in Ferguson, Missouri, as we've looked at what's going on in Iraq, as we've paid attention to things in the Ukraine, there are all kinds of revelations that we need justice. There's all kinds of things to make us say, God, we need justice in this world. Our prayers as a church the last three weeks have expressed a longing for justice. And yet it's true, isn't it, that as much as we long for justice, it's elusive. It's fleeting. It doesn't seem that we can ever really establish the kind of justice that we're longing for. 
Listen to this thoughtful reflection from Dr. Ray Ortland about the word justice in this text. This word translated justice includes within its scope all our longings for a better life and a better world. So Ortland says, everything you long for about the world being better, that's what Isaiah means when he says justice. Yet Ortland goes on to say, but by now the mess we've made is so far advanced, so systemic, so overwhelming, it's beyond our powers of correction. Should we work for a better society? Yes, God himself tells us to. But at the same time, let's have the humility to face the facts. In the whole sorry length of human history, we have failed to assemble even one human society as we ourselves would really like it to be. There are flashes of brilliance here and there, but they never last. Our salvation will never come from our own self-assertion. It will only come from the gentle servant of the Lord who will reorder human civilization not by bullying, but by suffering. Not by imposing demands on us, law, but by absorbing our sins and miseries into Himself, grace. The cause of this servant is to faithfully bring forth justice. In Him we have hope for a better world. Isaiah shows us the nature of this servant, the cause of this servant. Notice thirdly the work of the servant. Verse 6. This is the Father talking to the servant. I am the Lord, Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. The work of the servant is to open blind eyes, to deliver prisoners from their dungeons, because, you see, idolatry is self-imposed incarceration. This false God promises to make me happy, and so I chase after it, and I give myself to it, and what happens is it ends up owning me. Some of you guys have experienced this, right? You ever been in the relationship dungeon? Some of you guys have been here. You were chasing happiness in some relationship, some person who you thought would make you happy, and then you ended up trapped in an unhealthy relationship that was anything but happy and satisfying. Some of you guys have been in the career dungeon, right? You chased the fulfillment of career achievement and advancement and doing the thing that everybody told you you should do, and so you chased that, and you got to where you thought it was you wanted to be, and it turned out that that was bondage instead of freedom. Some of you have been in the dungeon and the prison of addictions where you chased some experience of pleasure that was connected to some substance and what ended up happening was you became controlled and enslaved by that substance. God is saying no matter what dungeon you've imprisoned yourself in, Jesus is willing to lead you out into freedom and joy and hope and life. 
That's what the servant comes to do, to bring prisoners out from the dungeon. And with this description of the servant, God is inviting you this morning to step over a line. See, it's possible to appreciate Jesus, but still to deal with Jesus on your own terms. It's possible to respect Jesus and yet not embrace him as Savior, not submit to him as Lord, not delight in him as your only hope. I suspect there are many of you here this morning who respect Jesus, who appreciate and admire Jesus, but who are also in very subtle ways avoiding Jesus. And God is inviting you this morning to step over the line from pride to praise. From scoffing to surrender. God's inviting you this morning just to, to come to Him, to, to entrust yourself to the servant. To say, God, I finally this morning humble myself. I admit my contribution to the injustice of this world. I'm part of the problem. You, God, are my only hope, so would you destroy my idols? Would you take me as your own? I embrace your salvation, and I give myself wholly and fully to you in Jesus Christ. God's inviting you this morning to step over that line. Will you step over that line this morning? Will you give yourself wholly and fully right now to the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's what happens when you do. Real satisfaction. True happiness. Look at Isaiah 42, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. This is the call, the invitation of someone who has found ultimate joy and life and happiness in God and in the servant God provides. And he's saying, everyone, come, worship, see, celebrate, savor this servant. This God, this deliverer. You see, the satisfaction that we're chasing is found in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah says, when you find that satisfaction, the natural response then is, let's worship, let's sing, let's celebrate, let's give God glory. This is why we gather here every Sunday and why part of our gathering involves singing. Because it's a way of expressing in an artistic way in a communal way, our delight in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. But see, if you haven't given yourself fully to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not all in with Jesus, then the singing we do on Sunday mornings won't be deeply meaningful to you. Because it's not reflecting the disposition of your own heart. You're still singing things that are true, but they aren't true in you. And so you're in a room of people singing truths about God, but they're not the overflow of your own heart's feelings and gratitude and disposition toward God. 
But see, when you've crossed that line, when you've given yourself fully to the Lord Jesus and received all that He is for you, then singing and praise and worship and glorifying, these are the things you long to do. This is the natural overflow of a heart that has been changed by grace. Notice who's invited to sing the song. You who go down to the sea, the coastlands, the desert, the cities, the villages, the inhabitants of Selah, anybody who's on top of the mountains, Everyone everywhere, join in singing and celebration. Isaiah wants everyone to know the happiness, the satisfaction, and the overflowing worship that comes from being satisfied by God in Jesus Christ. This is why we have public worship services. This is why our worship gatherings on Sunday are open to the whole city, and we're saying, come, Come taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and hear the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Come and participate and see that the happiness you're seeking elsewhere is actually found in the Lord Jesus. That God is the only final source of satisfaction and He's offered Himself to you in Christ. Now, verses 13 and 14 are two odd images that seem to come out of nowhere. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace, I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor, I will gasp and pant. So we have the image of a warrior psyching himself up for battle, and we have the image of a woman giving birth. Why these odd and disparate images? What is Isaiah saying to us in giving us these two pictures of God? What these images, what these metaphors, what these pictures are saying is God is so committed to our salvation that he's willing to fight for it and he's willing to suffer for it. Nothing is going to get in the way of God's victory over our idols and new birth in your soul. God's committed to two things, conquering your idols like a military commander going out to battle and giving new birth in your soul like a woman bringing new life into the world. Nothing's going to stop God from those two things. Nothing is going to get in the way of his bringing salvation to his people. Look at the rest of the text, verse 15. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. We've said before, God is not anti-beauty. God's not wanting to destroy forests and tear apart the earth. This is picturesque language saying, whatever's in the way, mountains, hills, trees, vegetation, I'm coming through it and I'm making a way for my salvation to come to my people. Nothing will stand in the way of this being realized. Verse 16, I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In past that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light and the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do and I do not forsake them. Nothing is going to get in the way of God's promised salvation coming to his people. And then Isaiah ends this way in verse 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. 
in light of the salvation, the freedom, the joy that God offers, why would you go back to your idols? What a backwards thing. What a shameful thing. What an empty thing. Isaiah ends where he began. He ends by returning to the theme of the uselessness, the worthlessness, the impotence of idols. And he ends with the same question he started with. How's that working for you? How are those idols working? Are they delivering what they promise? Are you really fulfilled and happy and content and satisfied? My friends, let's leave behind our stupid, worthless idols and let's give our worship and our lives to the one who really deserves them. Let's leave behind the dungeons and the prisons of our idolatry and let's follow Jesus into freedom and light. Why would we not? Let's pray together. God, we confess this morning with the prophet Isaiah that we chase after useless things, empty things, idols that cannot deliver what they promise. And we thank you, God, that you love idolaters like us. You graciously pursue those who are running the other direction. And you give us and offer to us the very happiness that we're chasing after. And it's found in your servant, Jesus Christ, and in union with him. So God, this morning we ask that you would open our eyes to see our false gods. Would you give us a clear picture of the idols each one of us chase? God, there's, there's hundreds of people in this room and all of us are chasing different things and all of us find happiness and satisfaction in different places. So Holy Spirit, would you do the gracious work of just turning on the light switch in our souls and illuminating for us the God substitutes that we have? And would you motivate us, would you awaken us this morning to turn from those things and to embrace all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ and all that you are for us in your infinite, incomprehensible beauty and goodness. Would you this morning deliver us out of prison and out of dungeons into the glorious light of new life, new joy, new freedom? Would you let this morning be a stake in the ground for us, God, where we leave behind old attachments and where we cross the line into something new, into life with Jesus, into happiness in God, into full and final and free salvation. Would you do this, Father, because you care about our happiness and because even more you care about your glory. You say here, you will not give your glory to another. You don't want your praise going to created things. And so God, make us a people who give glory to you. Who are changed by you to praise you and to find our greatest happiness and joy in you. We pray all this for our good and your glory. Amen.